HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for, about, between, amongst, and within the young farmer world. I am happy to be in good company of the Cook Sisters, who are known throughout Maine on the telephone and in person for their work in distributing local food products all over the state of Maine. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Hi, Severin. Hi, ladies. Um, let's do just a really brief introduction to how big is the state of Maine and how big is the reach of the Crown of Maine Co-op? Well, uh, the state of Maine is just over 300 miles from north to south and uh, a kind of non-linear 150 miles east to west. Um, And we cover most of it. There are some places we don't go, although we're willing to entertain it. Um, we do send products down into Boston and a little bit into Portsmouth and southern New Hampshire. So distribution is very close to my heart these days, ever since, ever since we got going on the sailboat project. Um, well, actually before even. And I recognize that it's a pretty, it's a pretty particular set of skills that distributors who are successful have. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the, the tasks that you that you have to do as a distributor, the kind of uh, supply chain list of, of jobby breakdowns? Leah, why don't you take that? <laughs> sure. Um, well, obviously there's the part that relates to you have to know your supply and your, the depth of your supply, and some of that involves canvassing and asking farmers what they've got in season we update our um, our offerings every week to reflect things as they come in and out or as we find things in the freezer and that sort of thing. So Murata kind of spearheads that. Um, 
there's making sure you put that out to the customers in such a way that it's informative and gives all the kind of identifying information that they are customer-based at the very least likes, like where the farms are and what the practices are and what the quantities are and, of course, prices. Um, <clears throat> there's the order cycle. There's um, then a round of purchasing and procurement that Mara and I spend our Friday nights doing. Um, and then there's a lot of logistics and routing that involve both, you know, where the del- how the delivery routes are going to be stacked up, but we also pick up on farms and meet people on the sides of roads and all kinds of crazy stuff. So that's a whole piece of our routing work. Um, when we get stuff into the warehouse, uh, usually on Mondays, we will do receiving and rotating and quality inspection and that kind of thing. And then there's the pick and pull and hopefully not too much repack, um, making sure that every customer gets every little thing that they want if we've got it. Um, and there's a whole round of communications back and forth with customers about, you know, what do we, what do we have, what uh, didn't make it through a frost and that kind of thing. And then we've got drivers out on the road that come and load their pallets and take it down the road and, again, meet people on the side of the road or <laughs> back alleys or whatever, whatever it has to be to get it where it needs to go. We have a lot of shipments that go over on ferries to mm-hmm. islands here in Maine. So a right. little bit of uh, boat freighting. I can't really call it sail freighting, but uh, mm-hmm. boat freighting is part of what we do. We don't do the boating, but we get it to the boats. In addition to that, there's a whole realm of work that involves food safety, which, you know, is a whole other topic, but it involves some facility management for us and um, documentation of various things and a lot of work maintaining our facility. So, uh, you know, something that we forget to mention a lot because it's not the glory work, but it's a pretty big part of doing the distribution as well. Well, it's, you know, this is noble ninja work to coordinate <laughs> such complexity um, you know, and and skim such a tiny margin off products that people need and all the scattered around in the world. Did how did you um how did you come upon this as the work you were gonna do in the world? Is this driven by your own skills? Is this come like a meta analysis of what's needed? Did you get dumped this business by your parents? What's the story here? <laughs> <laughs> um, probably mostly the latter, but a little bit of the former, I suppose. Um this was a family business, started out of the back of our passenger van. There's five kids in our family, so we had a pretty big van growing up and uh, moved the up. seats came out, fortunately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> moved up to a farm in northern Maine, as far north as you can get, right on the Canadian border when I was 12 and Leo was 10. And um, we have little brothers. No, they're not so little anymore, but <laughs> younger brothers. And... Um, my parents really had to find a way to get their products to market, and um, they were growing specialty organic pota- potatoes in the early 1990s. And um, so we started loading up the family van with our products and stopping at other farms in our area that were also growing organic products and starting to build little routes just to sell our own stuff. And then that kind of, um, you know, that put the food on the family table, um, literally and financially, for um, a number of years, and then as the kids grew up and left home, um, my parents sort of leaned, re- you know, slowed down on the farming side of things and did more and more of the marketing and distribution. Um, there's a whole long story, which I'm going <laughs> to skip for the <laughs> interest of time, yeah. but basically um, our father became ill in 2008 and uh, passed away at the end of that year, and 
Leah and I decided to keep the family business going, um, and it was kind of just, it was unfortunate circumstances in one way, losing our dad, but it was also um, excellent timing for the local foods movement and the work that needed to be done was waiting on all sides um, for sort of, not that, I mean, my dad was certainly driven, but he was only one person, and the, the distribution side of the local food movement in Maine really needed an accelerating um, business to help get things from here to there to customers that wanted to have them. So we grew the business from 380000 in sales in 2008 to $1.7 this year, so a five-year period. Holy cannoli! <laughs> and that, and that, and now you're, and now you're also a worker-owned co-op. We are. Well, we're we're still in a transition. Um, we have three workers who have been here for over two years that we've invited to become owners with us, and that's been a long time coming. We're very eagerly looking forward to their decision, and they just recently, within the last couple of weeks, got their whole big packet of information so they can make a hopefully informed decision. But, um, yeah, it's a unique it's a unique business with a unique model to it. And even within that, we have a sort of history and reputation for doing things um, business as unusual, as the slogan goes. Um, so you can bet that whatever the title assigned to us. We're doing it a little bit off of the model. <laughs> well, and, and the model, I mean, let's talk about the model. I mean, in in the place where I got all my nice kitchen chairs for $10 each in the Adirondacks used to be a local fruit distributor, and they had big refrigerators, and they were distributing fruit locally in the Adirondacks up to the 1950s. And I feel like I keep running across the, ever since then the relics of mom-and-pop distribution companies that seem to kind of disappear in the 60s. Um, can you kind of describe what is, your, what is the standard shape of food distribution um, in this country and, and how, are you guys, how are you guys unusual or are there other companies that are like you um, everywhere else? I can take this one. Well, that's Leah. Yeah, this is Leah. There, there are some real legitimate reasons why we have the food distribution landscape that we do, and a lot of it involves efficiencies. So normal distributors don't go pick up at the vendors unless they're really huge. Um, you try to have as many products as possible, but from as few suppliers as possible because it just makes your routing and purchasing logistics way simpler, and that increases your margin. Um, <clears throat> there's not a lot of incentive to um, try and take care of your producers in terms of price. As long as you're competitive, then, you know, that's kind of the name of the game. Um, and that kind of drives a race to the bottom in general. Um, if you look at the, the underlying assumptions related to food distribution in the U.S., so there's a lot of ways in which we're a little bit bizarre for a distributor. <laughs> um, the fact that we will, you know, we'll, we have a vendor that maybe will sell us 50 pounds of garlic in a year total, and that's virtually unheard of for most distributors because most distributors think it's not worth the time. 
um, lots of other distributors don't think that you can um, meet on the side of the road and hand off product. And, uh, you know, having done that from the family van and still doing that from the company trucks, we're perfectly fine with it. Um, so we pick up on farms. We deal with a lot, a lot of small producers. So um, I think we're at around 200 producers over the course of the year. Um, many of whom we pick up, some of which we depot together to pick up. Um, but we also preserve the farm identification all the way through the chain, you know, so people know what farm it's coming from when they order it, and that's what they get. Um, so they're not interchangeable items either. Uh, most distributors will charge delivery fees and fuel surcharges, and they have very hard and fast minimums, and they have places they don't go, and as Murata said, there are some places we don't go, but we work really hard to try and get there or make a, make a connection. Um, we do have a minimum that's far lower than almost any other distributor I've ever heard of, um, and we don't charge delivery fees. We don't charge fuel surcharges because we recognize that part of our role is to build the demand as well as the supply. So you have to invest in your market as well as in your vendor supply. Um, there are some other um, distributors that are somewhat similar. They have similar goals of trying to return a, a fair farm gate price to farmers and producers, and um, they may work with individuals and buying clubs and things like this. But one of the things that really makes us unique across the entire country, as far as I can tell, is that we are really based on a rural geography, both in terms of where we pull our supply from and where our market actually is. Like, yes, we saw a little bit into Massachusetts, and yes, we have Portland, which is, you know, like, city-ish. Um, <laughs> city. Well, it's a city. But by and large, you know, if you look at similar um, size distribution companies that work with small local producers, they're um, selling into major metro areas, which isn't really where our consumer base is. And that really changes your model when you actually get into the nuts and bolts. And then, so if there weren't enough nuts and bolts jangling around in your brain to take care of all these massive interlocking spreadsheets in seven dimensions, you guys also went to the trouble of getting involved in pickles and milling. Tell us about these choices. <laughs> well, we don't we out. don't make pickles, but we do. <laughs> we do. That's you, right? Um, oh. We we do have a. I thought I thought Northern Girl made pickles. Haven't, we haven't made pickles yet. We um, we have a fresh cut vegetable processing line and a frozen vegetable processing line at our uh, processing business called Northern Girl in Aroostook County. That's way up in the north of Maine. And the goal of that business is to offer um, growers in that region a somewhat scaled um, market for crops that currently some are being grown up there. It's a big potato region, um, one of the nation's most famed potato-producing <laughs> regions. Um, so potatoes, no object. There's plenty of those. Mm -hmm. um, but also to try and diversify into other crops that can be grown for processing. We're a long way from the nearest, uh, I shouldn't say, there are a few farmer's markets up there, but we're a long way from the nearest farmer's market with uh, substantial population mm -hmm. base behind it. So it makes sense. I mean, we want farming to thrive everywhere in Maine, and so we're looking at ways to um, 
sound models viable across the state, but those don't necessarily have to be the same models in all parts of the state. Maine, we joke that Maine is like um, a European country. <laughs> that may be, you know, somewhat over-glamorizing Maine, but um, we're certainly a little bit like the EU in that we have all these little pockets of diverse... Um, Aroostook is like the Basque region. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of separate unto itself while still being part of Maine. And part of the appeal to us in Northern Girl, like this is a project of Murata and I and our business partner, Chris Hallweaver. It's not a Crown of Maine project, although it's allied. Um, part of the appeal is that it, it becomes a vehicle to try and uh, create an avenue for more diversified production in an area that's uh, pretty dominated by commodity growing of potatoes. You know, and, and without the outlet, you don't really have the incentive for the change. And so, yeah, so we've looked at, you know, we're, we're kind of, um, we're investing in our own ways in the food system. There are people in Maine who are investing um, with considerable sums of money in the local agriculture and food businesses, which is very exciting. Um, we chose to do it in an entrepreneurial vein, and we did just buy a milling company called Fiddler's Green Farm. It's a 30-year-old milling company that has a wholesale and mail order business. We moved that to our warehouse here at Crown of Maine. Um, and Maine has kind of a rich history of having small, localized grist mills around the state, um, stone mills, everything from raised mustard um, out in Eastport to... Tide Mill Farm is a pretty famed um, area farm that started as a stone tidal-powered grist mill, um, I think in the mid-1700s. Um, and then, uh, you know, more recently, in the 70s, there were four or five stone mills that were operating in the state of Maine. And recently, there's been quite a resurgence of interest in grain growing and grain production and grain milling baking, um, and there's been a lot of contributing factors to that. Um, we have a staff person colleague here, Maria Reynolds, who you've interviewed, um, Groundswell Farm on the show before. They grow um, wheat and interesting varieties of seeds for their seed farm, um, and it's, it's quite an exciting time to be involved in the production of food in Maine because there's so many facets to what's going on. It's just a really rich um, sort of cross-current of people, like many, many enterprises, working on similar themed things, which is very exciting to me because um, we've been able to both sell the products that people make on the farms with Crown of Maine. We've been able to assist the processing end of it. Um, and we've been able to craft all these very interesting, we have many, many hybrid markets within the customer base that we sell to at Crown of Maine. So it's just we've been able to have a really unusual, very nuanced, very quirky system that we've developed in Maine that has a lot of opportunity for folks. It's really fun. It sounds incredibly stimulating, and uh, like I want to do it too. And I wonder... I wonder, how, how have you been learning? Like, you guys have been doing this project for a number of years now, and you've been obviously had to invent a whole bunch of systems to do the quirky logistics and the cross-currents and the hybrid markets. Can we just talk a little bit about your approach to technology and spreadsheets and 
um, like software and even if you use like landlines or do you use cell phones, do you have walkie talkies? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a lot of Amish producers that we work with, and so that's really been a good touchstone of remembering that it's. I think that especially in the local foods movement, there is a lot of emphasis on the technology used, and I, in mm. some systems, that's very appropriate to what needs to happen. I think in ours, the, sec- the technology has really played second fiddle to the people, and that might may just be the way Leah and I are as entrepreneurs. I mean, it may just be that I love talking on the phone. So uh, I- no, it's not just that. I'm going to interrupt. This is Leah. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> I was a Peace Corps volunteer, she does right? That a lot. <laughs> well, anyway, the point is, I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and one of the things that you talk about in international development and sustainable development, which I think totally applies to places like Maine, um, is the appropriate use of technology. So, just like broadcast getting on the bandwagon of like, you should have a Facebook page and a Twitter. Well, hey, if that makes sense for your business, that's great. You know, if I have trouble returning the phone calls because we're so busy, then I'm not going to have a Twitter, or, you know, I'm not going to be a twit, and I'm not going to have a Facebook page because I can't keep up with it. So more to the point of functionality, I mean, I think you have to recognize that there are people in Maine who still prefer to call in their order. You know, like, uh, there are so many people who are on our mailing list even. They call and they give us an email address, and, you know, I'm, I'm not going to name providers but you recognize which providers are in which very, very far-flung regions, and you recognize that, hey, like, there's limits to the amount that technology is going to help you because here at headquarters I could have some super fancy, like, robot algorithm that works for me, but it's not necessarily going to work for the people that I'm working with. So um, I think there, there's, it's somewhat intentional <laughs> that we're not totally teched out, um, part of it is that I, I don't, if I don't see a piece of technology that's going to do the job better than we can, then I'm not going to be jumping on it because it's just going to be something else I have to manage. But to be totally balanced and mm. a little bit transparent because I think we do use things. has a good point. <laughs> I and mean, we're not Luddites. We all have no, no, cell phones right. and my cell phone bill is like an outrageous number of minutes per month. Um and, you know, we have a networked computer base at the office, and right. we use QuickBooks, and we have um, some online software programs. I use Smartsheet as just a, it's sort of like Excel sheets on steroids that really helps to give a nut, like to take a two-dimensional spreadsheet and make mm-hmm. it three-dimensional and reportable and just send buy out club emails. Software. We use a software program with our buying clubs. Actually, the buying clubs use it, and we supply the information to it. Um, we use a free software program called foodclub.org. So we have a couple of different platforms that buying clubs can use to purchase through. Um, and, we, you know, we send out MailChimp emails. And, you know, so we've, we've got an amalgam of uh, many different things that we use. But I think at the end of the day, you know, some of the people that we've been doing business with, we've been doing, literally, <laughs> have been doing business with them since we were preteens. And there's just nothing that, there's no software program that's going to enhance that relationship more than talking on the phone to them. Um, it would be great if, and we have had many, many of our, um, both suppliers and customers come up and see us, but, you know, I think our dream is someday we, we'd love to have a vendor and supplier party here at our warehouse. So it's, we're not quite there uh, logistically or spatially.
chilly or time <laughs> or all these things. But maybe um, I think next year is our 20th anniversary of sorts So um, from when my parents started the company. So maybe uh, if we really can pull our act together, we might, mm. might be able to throw a big party here at the warehouse. <laughs> It'd be kind of fun. But, you know, when we talk about creating systems, um, I would say that the last four or five years has been like an intensely creative period for us, you know? Part of it was that we had this enormous driving growth going on that some of it we weren't driving. <laughs> like, we were just trying to keep up, and um, part of it was that there didn't exist systems before because they didn't need it when it was just my dad and I was driving for him, you know what I mean? Like, you don't you don't need systems at that point. When you get more people and you have more moving pieces, like my personal ability to play Tetris in the freezer, it becomes somewhat irrelevant, you know? Like, it, it helps in the middle of the night when we're receiving a truck and have to put away half a pallet of frozen stuff, but, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily help on the daily basis when other people need to work in there. So a lot of it is getting to make up what works for you as you go along, and, I mean, we've been really lucky in that, our company culture has really kind of had this huge shift in the last couple of years where everybody's on board with that and everybody is very creative and thinking about solutions to things that we run into. So, I mean, I would say that systems aren't a static thing. <laughs> as much as it would be nice to set up the perfect, you know, Rude Goldberg machine that's going to work perfectly every time, that's not really our reality. So we just have to shift with what's going on and just constantly, you know, renew, reset, change things around, and, I mean, that's part of what I love about what I do. Yeah, and just you're drawing into my mind the image um, of a buying club that we visited down in North Carolina, and they had, you know, also regular food safety things, and he had wired up all the refrigerators to have sensors on them, and, and then he also just did this little thing that I thought was so smart where... He had a little strap of Velcro that you had to just peel the Velcro in order to open the refrigerator mm, mm-hmm. in order to, like, make sure that the refrigerators would go, would close and be tight. Mm-hmm. And it reminded, you know, and then it reminds me of just, like, all the small businesses that we're, we watch all the time and you see the little, like, cup that hangs on the spout where the spout kind of drips a little bit mm-hmm. and, you know, the place where people stand and that they've got their tape dispenser in the right place. I feel like the essential, it's an essential part of being a human is adapting, you know, creating infrastructure around the goals at hand and the tasks at hand. I guess we have to continue the conversation next week. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks.